can't judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, well, we hope you enjoyed our episode last. Last, yeah. We hope you enjoyed our last episode. Our last episode. There you yeah. go. We got uh, there. Yeah, we're we're doubling up this week. We had Marsha last time, and we got Marsha this time. But we'll get into that in a minute. We we probably should make the next one Marsha. So in the list of episodes, it'll say Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. My mom I, would hate that. You know, so my, mad that I didn't think about that until this moment. My mom's name is Marsha, and that is her number one pet peeve is like anyone saying that line to her. It's kind of like me with the like, oh my God, Becky. Look, I have a shirt butt. that says that. Yeah. I didn't like it when I was a uh, when I was a kid because I was like, why are people saying that? Are they calling my butt big? Like I didn't know that whatever. You wish. Oh. Listen, I got a You do have a butt. nice butt. Yeah. Anyway, um, so everyone, we are recording via Zoom today because this kid right here got the Rona. Oh, no. Say your name so they know it's not me. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Kim. Kim's been good. Not uh-huh. that you've been bad. I'm just No, like, that's the I, thing. It's like I have been so careful and. You have. And this is literally the one week in the entire year that I wanted to make sure I did not get COVID because I have a big trip planned next week. So, you know, that's probably why it probably the universe was like, guess what? Your turn. Yeah, uh, we were away at a wedding. And as much as we were careful, a wedding is an event that revolves around food and drink and so often requires unmasked time. Did and you just Google what a wedding was? <laughs> just read it. <laughs> no. Why it would that be like. what a wedding says? <laughs> Definition Google. of a wedding. Wedding reception. Fun times. Food. But was it a good wedding? Like, it was. It was really nice. It, and it oh was God. It was their fourth reschedule. Oh, my God. They were originally supposed to get married in May of 2020. And Ooh, then... Yeah. And then September 2020 Mm. and then June 2021. And now finally this year, June 2022. What happened June 2021? Um, The groom's family is from abroad and they couldn't get to the country. So, okay, you know, vaccines were just really rolling out for everyone and all that. So I don't know how we got so lucky with my wedding. Yeah, you you happened to hit it at a at a good point in yeah that fall twenty twenty one yeah like but, the cases were low everyone was vaccinated not boosted by that point but vaccinated yeah I will say I feel pretty lucky though because they have that Paxlovid COVID medication out now so that's mm. really helped with my symptoms it's you know it's approved for emergency use kind of thing so the doctor was like hey. I'll give you this prescription, but I want you to make an appointment with me for like in a month or so, so I can check your liver function. And I was like, oh. awesome. But you know, there it's, 
they need to figure out what this medication does and doesn't do. And yeah. Uh, well, I guess that's better than just being like, take this medicine. Goodbye. And then in like yeah. six months, you're like liver falls out. Yeah. And I mean, it's probably fine. Mm-hmm. I don't have any underlying liver conditions or history of that in my family. Really, the biggest side effects are the nasty, bitter taste it leaves in your mouth for hours on end. I hear it disappears like a day or so after your last dose. So fingers crossed. And a little bit of nausea, but I think that's because of the breath. <laughs> Ew. I know. Oh, I'm sorry. It's it's all right. You know, and, and Sean got it again. It's his second go with it. So oh, poor boy. guy. Does he like is... Is this better than the first time or comparably uh, the same? It's hard to tell. I think mm. a little less. I think it's a little less intense, but um, I just need us both to test positive. That's all. Negative. Oh, this was our big no. Yeah, negative. That's what I definitely need. Oh, not positive. See, look what you're putting out into the world. Be careful. <laughs> Maybe I need to reverse engineer this. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, like reverse psychology, the universe. Yes. Yes. Nice. But uh, you know, hopefully, here's to recovering and to being able to travel. Yes. Uh, this, this episode is actually coming out towards the end of my trip, so you'll hear about my adventures when we do our next episode hopefully 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 we go yeah i hope so i'm knocking on wood i would not don't, knock, my don't knock on wood knock you're on. gonna tip things over. wait no i'm a... okay i got woke pete up he's like who's here nobody's here <laughs> go back to sleep um i'm i'm traveling yeah it's- be safe and now i'm like really worried about it like i was worried before but now i'm like super worried like um me and some friends are going to new orleans and like i was worried because like air travel and stuff but i'm also worried because it's like really hot and i don't know if i'm gonna keep my mask on my face if it's like super hot the whole time like i don't Mm -hmm. know i'm worried but yeah yeah i don't know it's it's a weird time um i I flew to Chicago for a a supernatural convention the week before Mm -hmm. and I had uh, the N95 with a cloth mask over it and I didn't remove it the entire flight. Um, Well, yeah, I just hydrated a lot before I got on the plane and Mm -hmm. it wasn't a super long flight. I think it's only two and a half hours. So I just put the mask on and went to sleep and um, yeah, that's what, yeah, I'm, I will probably wear a mask on an airplane for the rest of my life, just because when you think about how gross airplanes actually are, there's a lot of things that like I won't do anymore after COVID, like blowing out candles on a cake. No, thank you. Like <laughs> you were just spitting all over your cake and then serving it to your friends. Like that's gross. Why were we doing that? Like there's lots of things I won't do, but like I am for sure going to wear my mask the whole time I'm on the plane. Like that's mm-hmm. not a problem, but it's just like, in the French quarter when it's like 95 degrees. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's not too crowded that week. I don't know. I hope so because it's like pride is uh, like their pride is ending right before we get there. Okay. So I'm thinking we like, and then like essence fest is like the next week. So I think we're going on like a very low week. We will see. I can't knock on wood again, but I think that it will be fine. Okay. Well, that's good. good. Ooh. I have a funny story for you. Okay. Yes. So um, me and my husband went to go see Dr. Strange. It feels like so long ago um, at Alamo Draft House, right? The one in downtown Brooklyn. 
And we're walking to the bathroom because we just got there and we're like, let's go to the bathroom first. So we're walking and there's a guy coming from the bathroom with his young daughter. And he says to his wife, there's no changing table in there. You've got to take her. So the wife is like, okay. So they come in the bathroom with me and I'm just like, what? Like I'm outraged. I'm in the bathroom trying to figure out like, what's the email address for Alamo? So I can be like, this is outrageous that you don't have a changing table in your men's facilities. Like, how dare you? This is sexist. Like what is going on? Also your bathrooms are always dirty. What is like, I'm drafting a whole email. So I get out of the bathroom, meet my husband, we go sit down and I tell him, I was like, I, I'm going to write an email because like, I don't think that that's okay. And my husband goes, yeah, that dude lied. There was definitely a changing table in the bathroom. You walked right by it when you walked in the door. And then I was just like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, he didn't want the responsibility, I'm guessing. And I'm just, I got even more mad. I was like, there's no one to write a letter to about how shitty this dude was. But he was like, I don't feel like changing this kid's diaper. You do it, wife. Like, he just like left her hanging to do it. Like, that's so weird. Like, he lied. I was so mad. Wow. I don't know what theater they went into because I would have been like, excuse me, miss, your husband is a liar. And then I was, Theo goes, my husband. Wait, you call him Theo. I know he's Theo. The listeners have heard his name before. I listen. I'm listening. Tell me the story. Theodore. Um, So Theo's like, oh, well, like the next time she goes to the bathroom, she'll see it, but she won't because the women's bathroom is before the men's bathroom. So unless you're going to the men's bathroom, there's no reason to walk by, but there's apparently a sticker on the door that says that it has a childcare, like a, what do you even call it? Changing table. Yeah. 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 So I don't know if this woman will ever know, but I, if I ever see them again, I'm going to let her know because I thought that was shitty. Maybe she's listening. Maybe. We have a lot of New York listeners. If you watched a movie in May or was it June? I don't even know. What are days anymore? May or um, June of 2022 at the Alamo it was Draft like June House. 4th. Yeah. In the afternoon. At the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn, New York. And your significant other told you there was no changing room in the men's room. That was a lie. He <laughs> lied. You better think about everything else that he might be lying about. Oh, no. Well, let's not. I mean, parenting wise. (laughs) Oh, I couldn't stop and get milk because the store was closed. Sir, this is New York. Everything's 24 hours. Almost everything. Well, yeah, yeah, something is 24 hours. Something that sells milk is 24 hours. Mm. Anyway, speaking of selling things. okay. Did you hear about the tampon shortage? I did not. But as someone who hasn't had to use um, menstrual hygiene products for seven years. You could just say tampon. Like, well, I mean, of it any. So well, I would use any. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't use pads. I don't use cups. I don't use, I don't use anything. Cups freak me out. I like read a story about like a suction issue on a diva cup, but I was like, oh. Well, I know people no. who swear by them. So I don't know. To each their own. Do each their own. For your whatever, body. Exactly. whatever helps you. But there's a tampon shortage. And I just find it funny. A friend of mine was like, there's never a shortage on anything that directly affects men. Like there's no Viagra shortage happening right now. Like it's the stuff that we need, but there's always a, mm-hmm. a shortage on. This one is specifically, it's a uh, it's Tampax, like that brand is having the shortage. So the other one should be fine. But Tampax makes the best ones, in all honesty. 
If you say you're so. like, I don't know. I don't know. I've been on, I've been on Tampax since college. Anyway, I think we should probably get into our episode. Let's start it with a fun fact. Okay. New York state has more lawyers than any state in the country. All right. That, that is a fun fact. Um, relates to our subject, but indirectly, right? Because she was in California. Was it in California? Well, it relates because she's a lawyer. Of course it relates because she's a lawyer. <laughs> I just meant it's not exactly because it's so, a different. Technically, yes. Yeah. So we're going to be discussing Marsha Clark, who was a former prosecutor for Los Angeles County. We're going to address some of the cases that she covered and the stigma that she faced as a female lawyer in the 1990s. We'll spend some time covering the way that the media treated her during high profile cases, in particular during the O.J. Simpson trial in which she served as the head of prosecution. Then we'll talk about the realities of being a female lawyer during this time and during this case, including being a working mom and sexism in the workplace. Finally, we'll wrap up with the impact that Clark has had both in the courtroom and beyond in the years since the Simpson trial. Just some trigger warnings. Uh, There's going to be talk of suicide, rape, and murder. Marsha Clark, originally born Marsha Ray Clarks. Okay, so this is like, this is what they say. I remember reading this or whatever and be like, what the hell does this word mean? But it's like they say, nay, clecks. Have you ever heard that? They'd be like, Marsha Rachel Clark, nay, clecks. What? No. <laughs> yeah. It's so I Googled it today just because like I've heard this over and over. And I'm like, this is the thing that is said when they talk about a, a woman who's married as a way to reference her her maiden name. Oh, isn't God. that obnoxious? So it's like you're like originally this. And I was like, nay, Clex. And it just sounds so ridiculous. It's like I had we're to gonna say tell it. you. We're going to tell you about this lady. Uh, but we need to reference her husband and her father, just so you know. That's uh-huh. so when right? someone was like, oh, are you going to change your last name? Like, don't you feel bad? Like, changing your last name? I was like, either way, I have some dude's last name. Unless I, like, create my own, which would be really cool to do. And it would have been a conversation beforehand, before the wedding. But, like, either way, like, my last name is some dude's last name. Like, I didn't pick it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I didn't pick mine either, but I decided to keep it just for simplicity's sake. Yeah, okay. I know we're talking about this, but also simplicity's sake, I've been trying to get a new social security card uh, for a month and a half because I changed my last name. And they're like, well, do you get mail at your address with that name? And I was like, yeah. And then my birthday came and everyone sent me like cards with like that last name. And they're just like, well, maybe it got lost. Uh, you should contact your post office and ask why it didn't get delivered. And I'm just like, oh, wait, social security office. You think that that's a real conversation the post office is going to have with me? Like, it's not a thing. So like, they were like, oh, we'll send out another one. But if you don't get it, you need to come in. So now I have to go into the office again to do something that I've already done. So I'm really thinking like, do you want me this name change? Like, it's it's becoming a thing. It's becoming a real thing. And that's the yeah. first step to changing your name anywhere else is a social security card. So like, I haven't even reached the first hill and I'm ready to die on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, maybe you could use a good lawyer. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what I mean. That was a terrible segue back into our topic. But <laughs> so anyway, we're talking about Marsha Clark, not my 
problems with the Social Security office. But if you're listening to Social Security office, get on it. Anyway, Marsha was born in Almeda, California on August 31st in 1953. Her parents, Rosalind and Abraham Clarks, moved around the country quite often as Abraham worked as a chemist for the FDA. Clark's younger brother followed their father's science-minded footsteps into becoming an engineer. Marsha expressed a more creative path. Her passion was performance. She studied ballet and was the lead in many high school plays. She had dreams of becoming an actress and a dancer until a life-changing trip to Israel sent her down a different path. So this next section, just as a heads up, it's not going to be graphic or anything, but it may be a bit triggering. So feel free to skip ahead, maybe 30 seconds or so, a minute if you feel the need to. When Marsha was 17 years old, she was raped by a waiter at the resort where her and her friends were staying. In an article with The Hollywood Reporter, she recalls that rape. It was violent. Her clothes were torn. She was bruised and hurt, though not so visible that people would notice. More than anything, she felt ashamed for years and didn't tell anyone. She notes after the rape, he wanted to walk me back to my room and I just pushed him aside. And I just walked to the far end of the beach and thought, this is it. I can't live with this. And as And I walked into the ocean. It was really calm. That ocean was very warm. It was almost like a lake. I got all the way up to about here. And she gestures to her nose because I was going to kill myself. I felt so worthless. And then I got mad. All I could feel was anger, which is what probably saved me. So the rape set her career path in motion. After attending UCLA, Marcia studied at Southwestern School of Law. Clark later passed and was admitted to the State Bar of California in 1979. She started as a public defender for Los Angeles County, and by the time she was 28 years old, she was married and had become a prosecutor. The violence in her past influenced her interest in victim advocacy. The need to help combined with her performance background made her a force to be reckoned with in the courtroom. Outside of the courtroom, Marcia found life with her husband was becoming a bit strained. In her biography, without a doubt such a good name for an autobiography. Clark recalls how their marriage came to be. Her husband at the time, Gabriel Horowitz, was someone who she was casually dating and they spent most of their time together fighting. Sounds like fun. Yeah. She states, even now, I'm hard put to explain why I married him. But in its own weird way, getting married made sense at the time. Gabby needed a green card and he'd get one if he married me. I agreed on one condition, that no one but the government would know about it. He agreed, and that's how we got married the first time. It was just a formality. A year or so passed, and the two decided to make a make it more public. They had a public wedding on November 6, 1976. Uh, they basically got married again. So the bliss didn't last long. Her career became more solid, and she grew more confident. She realized that her days with Gabriel were numbered. <laughs> that sounds so, like, ominous. Her days were numbered. (laughs) They were, because she left. So she got a divorce and she was dead broke, but she was just so happy to be free and start dating someone else that she didn't care. And she did just that. So her second husband, Gordon Clark, worked at the Scientology Administration's office. So the Church of Scientology didn't allow romantic relationships between its office members and members of the public. So if Gordon wanted to keep his job and continue seeing Clark, they would have to get married. Yeah. And she would have to join the church. Right. Um, Maybe she already was. I don't know. But she was a low member of the church, like a starter out member. Two weeks after this, Gordon and Marsha were married in a friend's apartment. Now, we don't know for certain how deep into Scientology Clark was, but she states that she's currently no longer religious and has no ties to the church. And like side note, 
Scientology is so scary. Like, did have you watched that Leah Remini series? No, I want to, but I did read, there was this massive book that I cannot remember the title of that was about like the history of L. Ron Hubbard and like how everything got started. Maybe it was called The Pact. I don't know. I'll I'll throw it on the, the Instagram. They made a movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Is it is a movie of this book. And it sounds terrifying. Like it like, does sound like... So I I looked this up afterward because I I know that when people leave the church, mm-hmm. they are forced to cut ties with everyone like that stays in the church if they yeah. like they're, they're not allowed to to stay connected. Now the church denies that and I use the word church loosely just cuz that's the term they use. Yeah. But um but yeah, so I was like, oh, I wonder if she was able to still see her children. I didn't see that answer or anything, but I didn't see that she wasn't able to see them. So, you know, because it's one of those things where like if he was higher up in the church and she was lower and left, would mm-hmm. he have like regained control of the children? Which, of course, they wouldn't grow up with him. They would grow up being like trained in the yeah. armies of science. It's wild. I I'm just so glad for her that she got out, that she's like think low enough she, to get out yeah. with ease. I don't think she or he were very deeply in it. I feel like for him, it might've been a job. Um, but I mean, the kids are, she like has custody of the kids for like a good chunk of yeah. time. So I don't think that there was something where the church was so affected within their relationship. Got it. Okay. <laughs> So be- speaking of kids, uh, between 1990 and 1992, Marsha and Gordon would have two children, Kyle and Travis. Those are such 90s names, Kyle <laughs> and Travis. I love it. And um, so during this time, she also started a very high profile murder case. No, not that one, but we're going to get there. In this case, she prosecuted Robert John Bardo for the murder of television star Rebecca Schaefer. So let's talk about this case real quick, right? Bardo was a guy who becomes obsessed with the young actress, Rebecca Schaefer. She began her career as a teen model before moving on to acting. In 1986, she landed a role in the CBS comedy, My Sister Sam. Have you ever seen that? I haven't, but I am familiar with this story. So Bardo started very calmly by like sending letters, but over the course of three years, he escalated to visiting the set weekly with gifts. Bardo hired a private investigator to obtain Schaefer's home address. He would then visit that address and shoot Schaefer dead on July 18th, 1989. She was only 21 years old. That's fucking insane. That's crazy. Bardo's lawyers argued that he was mentally ill, like they do. Um, And they said that Bardo had schizophrenia and that it was his illness that had led him to commit the murder. And you know what? He may have had schizophrenia. I'm not saying that, but like to blame that on his actions is not okay because there are plenty of people who have schizophrenia and can live with it without murdering people, stalking them and murdering them. Anyway. Clark battled against this defense to prove that the murder was premeditated. She had made a promise to the family that she would fight as hard as she could to bring them justice. In October 1991, Bardo was found guilty of first-degree murder and is serving a life sentence without parole. Winning this case inspired laws to change. Federal laws regarding the release of personal information through the DMV was changed. The Driver's Privacy Protection Act was amended to prevent the DMV from releasing private addresses uh, as of 1994. 
It also helped prompt the 1990 passing of America's first anti-stalking laws. So my question is for the DMV. Um, People who could just walk in and be like, hey, you know, oh, you have the same name as this woman, but like, you know, Professor Bex, I need her address. And they'd be like, boop, 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 boop. do you want us to print that out? Or, e- well, they can't even email it. But like, do you want us to print that out? Or would you like to write it down? Like, they were just giving out addresses. Like, this is too close to now times to, to be okay. Like, if this was like the 1920s, maybe. But like, 1994, they were just like, oh, I guess we won't give out addresses anymore. Well, you think about like you could find anybody's address in the phone book too. You call information and get their address. And what was wrong with everyone? <laughs> I mean, well, they why? weren't expecting people to murder each other. I want to send a random person I don't know a letter. I need their address. You don't need, if you don't have someone's address, you don't need it. You would already have it. But this case was really high profile. There were eyes all over Clark and her team. Clark was a great and effective lawyer who had won 19 out of 21 of the cases in her career, but nothing could have prepared her for her 21st and last case, the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. So how much do you know about this case? Like, what's your relationship with it? Honestly, I was not super invested or involved or paying that much attention. What was I like? Was 93, 94? Somewhere around. So I was 13. Like it was not in my, you know, like I knew about it. Mm -hmm. Like I remember the footage of the Bronco and the glove and the like, oh, it doesn't fit and blah, blah, blah. All that stuff. Sort of the, the big highlights. Okay. Uh, But I don't really remember watching it live. Like, I remember that it was televised, but Mm -hmm. I didn't watch it myself. So I was in either fourth or fifth grade. And my mom was very into this case. She was very into true crime. Like I watched way more shows than I should have at a very young age. So we would eat dinner and watch Core TV and watch the recaps. Like until I went to bed, like we were very into this case. So like the bloody glove, all I saw, I saw all of that. Fifth grade Kim was like, what is this? Wow. Um, I mostly remember the verdict because we were in it's either fourth or fifth grade, but I remember the teacher that I had at the time. And um, he played the verdict on the radio. Like he was waiting for it too. And it was just, it seemed like now it seemed like a really bad idea. Cause we were again, fifth or fourth, I feel like it was fourth grade. And he was this white teacher and we were all like little brown and like Asian students And all we knew was that, you know, O.J. Simpson is great and he's getting railroaded. So when he was not guilty, we all cheered. And this teacher was so mad at everyone. And we had to have a timeout for the rest of the afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how the trial affected. You know what? It's what you deserved, fourth and fifth graders. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to defend my fourth grade self. She was dumb. She no, and that's what I was going to say is like, you know mm-hmm. what, like you said, he was a, a football hero and he mm-hmm. was like a, a celebrity and it was a big thing. And and, you know, we're kind of trained to side with the person who's uh, like defending, has to defend themselves and blah, blah. Yeah. And yeah, so 
Do I think your teacher should have given you a time out? No, I think there should have been a conversation about this, but I guess it could have been it could have been a teachable moment, but also it was like 95. So, yeah, you know, yeah, he anyway. was just so mad, like he turned so red and was so angry. It was a moment. It was said. I'll never forget that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine. Well, we're not going to go too deep into the facts of the crime itself because this episode is about Marsha Clark and her impact, not about O.J. Simpson, but we'll give you a quick mm-hmm. overview uh, of the murders. So in case you're not familiar. Like you might, it's been, been a long time. Like you might not be. Um, yeah. So Nicole Brown Simpson was the 35-year-old ex-wife of NFL star O.J. Simpson. She was the mother, she was the mother of two and a former waitress. Ron Goldman was 25. He was a surfer, restaurant waiter, and a friend of Nicole's. The two ran into each other earlier that night as Nicole and her family ate dinner at a restaurant where Ron worked. Goldman found a pair of glasses that Nicole's mother had accidentally left behind, and he offered to drop them off that night after his shift. Nicole and Ron were brutally murdered outside of Nicole's Los Angeles townhouse at approximately 10 p.m. on the night of June 12, 1994. Both were stabbed to death while Nicole's two children slept upstairs. Authorities soon named O.J. Simpson as their primary suspect, and the murders turned into a media frenzy. So the trial began on January 24th, 1995. The O.J. Simpson case was very highly publicized, more so than any other cases that Clark had tried. And honestly, more than most cases in the the country at that time. Um, Clark served as a lead counsel while being supported by Christopher Darden as a second chair lawyer. So even though O.J. Simpson was the one on trial, Marsha was being judged as well, but from society. Of course. The media reached out to all sorts of legal pundits looking to question Clark's qualifications and what her motives were for being on the case. I'm sorry, her motives? Like, we're talking about motives. The motives should be the person who's on trial, not the lawyers. You would think. You know, like, she didn't even pick the case. Mm -mm. She was a prosecutor and it was assigned to her. She also had experience and a success rate when it came to homicide trials, so it wasn't shocking that they would have put her on this case. So like we said before, Clark had won 19 out of 20 cases at that point. L.A. County had no doubt that she would that they would win this case. It looked clear cut. But sexism. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just one element, right? Um, we'll get Clark, you on. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of them. Well, let's start here. Clark had actually spoken up about sexism in the past. The courthouse was, you know, the old boys club. Everybody loves that phrase. But Clark was one of only a handful of women in the DA's office. However, she described the sexism as, quote, relatively tolerable. Once people could see that you were up to the challenge of the work, they mostly didn't bother you. But that's still in and of itself an issue, right? Yeah, like I relatively mean, tolerable sounds horrible. Like that's like I've got tooth pain, but it's relatively tolerable. Not my office is sexist, but it's relatively tolerable. Like that's every day you go into work for how many hours and you have to deal with some ugh, we'll we'll get to it because they're terrible. Like every the patriarchy. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's the worst. It is. 
this trial was different. It was the first time people were seeing a woman challenge a man in court this way. As lead prosecutor, she was described as cold and calculating. I mean, calculating sounds bad, but I would want a lawyer who was always moving like chess pieces, like maneuvering for my on my behalf. Yeah. And like, honestly, calculating doesn't need to sound bad. Like, I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying. It has this negative connotation a lot of times. But I think like if we just think about it like a machine and math and calculating and it's just like adding up what what you need to get to the answer. Right. And that's what she was doing. Right. No one likes math. Rebecca. Well, maybe math scientists do. Those don't exist. (laughs) Just because you're not a math scientist. (laughs) I was waiting for it. I could be if I wanted to. (laughs) I couldn't be. I'm so bad at math. Anyway, it's not about math or math. Uh, You know, normally the sexist rhetoric didn't come from within the courtroom, but this time it was different. Marsha was subjected to sexist comments coming from her fellow lawyers. In this case, defense attorney Johnny Cochran, you know, for example, let's just put this out here, called her hysterical. Now, we love this word, hysterical, right? Like, let's talk about this word hysterical for a minute, right? It comes from the word hyster, which is a word that's a, it's a Greek word for uterus. And so this is, you know, hysterectomy. You think about that, that sort of things. It's a word that's used very specifically to target women, right? You're hysterical. Oh, it's, it's problems of the uterus that are making you crazy. Like, that's really what it's saying. Isn't that disgusting? That's really gross. <laughs> I feel like I thought about it before and I've made the connection, but I've never like deeply made the connection. And some old dude back in the day was just like, ugh, we need a word to describe how much I hate women and what <laughs> what, what they're what they're talking sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. Hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. Because they've got hysterical. a uterus, so they're hysterical. Anyway, Clark challenged Cochran on this remark, saying it was unacceptable to be spoken to that way. Uh, but others at the defense table just laughed. I mean, she was right. So she was right, but yeah, it, it's unacceptable in, in your workplace. Yeah, no, that's not cool. And this is a table full of male defense lawyers. Mm-hmm. So while trying to defend her character, Clark turned off many female jurors who saw her as harsh and aggressive. The media outlets were reporting her as being angry and rigid. Marsha had a PR problem and went as far as to hire a jury consultant so she can correct her image with them. The outside media didn't matter, but she didn't want to lose such a big case just because the jury didn't like her. Her consultant advised Ms. Clark to speak more softly and wear pastels. I, I mean, this whole situation is infuriating to me. First of all, like the female jurors being sort of turned off by her because she mm-hmm. was the words that were used here were harsh and aggressive, but like strong and assertive. Yeah. Like a female prosecutor should be or needed to be at that time. Or like a ever. male prosecutor should be like yeah. any prosecutor should be just that's their job. Right. And and then this whole idea of like, oh, if you dress more feminine or you speak more softly, then you'll be mm-hmm. more like. But will you be able to get your point across in the same way? Like, what are you compromising here? What are you giving yeah. up in in exchange for 
pastels. I also just feel like, I don't know if this is, I, I mean, I maybe should look up like some studies on this, but like, is that effective? Like, are you more calmed by someone if they're wearing lighter colors and speaking in, in, a, in a softer tone, if they're still giving you facts? Yeah. And I think that that is a big thing, but when it shouldn't be a big thing, but it, it is. Shouldn't, no. And it's especially so with uh, a female voice where it's like, you know, are you a voice of authority? Should you be a voice of authority? Am I okay mm-hmm. with you being a voice of authority? And that's where the problem comes in, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, the court of public opinion, honestly, they just had a field day chipping away at the literally only woman with power that was in the courtroom. And as the sole female prosecutor on the case, her appearance, her job performance, her personal life, it all became a matter of public attention and public record. From her heels to her skirt, or if she dared to wear pants, yes, it all became part of the 5 p.m. news update. Even her hair was a big topic. Honestly, I think that was probably like the big thing about her yeah. that was most targeted. And now, Marsha had two kids at home, um, little ones, two boys under the age of five. And she, like, most working women of the early 90s was looking to make her life easier. So she opted to have the sort of wash and wear perm, right? So we all saw Legally Blonde, right? Like we don't need to explain perms and how they work, right? Yeah, I'm, I mean, listen, I only learned from you that there were two different kinds of perms. Like there's perms perms. for black people and there's perms for white people. Like Michelle Williams, there's one for whites and one for blacks and they do different (laughs) things. So I I did that joke on like the Marilyn Monroe episode. And some people were like, why did you say white Michelle Williams? Because there's a white Michelle Williams who's an actress, most notably known from Dawson's Creek, in my opinion. And there's black Michelle Williams who is from the girl group Destiny's Child. There are two Michelle Williams. Yes. I got the joke. I knew it. Okay, good. I'm proud of you. Thank you. It's, It's funny now. I don't know when I first said that around um, Theo. He was referring to Michelle Williams about something. I think he was talking about like Heath Ledger. And he was like, yeah, he was married to Michelle Williams, the white one. And just like casually in conversation, I was like, why do you know to do that? Why are you doing that? But that's when I was like, love this guy. (laughs) He's the one. He's the one. Anyway, you know about perms. So perms are little tight curls. Oh, yeah. Wear for white hair. Not the same for black hair, but she had a perm. She didn't really care. She was like, I, I got to get two kids ready. Like, this doesn't matter to me. She was under the impression that like none of it mattered, but because it shouldn't, it shouldn't. She was in court, you know, working on a a very grisly, bloody crime. Like who would be looking at her and not the evidence, but she was wrong. She was really wrong. She became the focus and under guidance of that jury consultant we spoke about, it was suggested that she softened herself starting with her hair. So she changed her hair. She was called vain for taking the time to doll herself up and the media likened her to a poodle. You literally can't win, right? Oh, no. Don't do your hair. You're slobby. You do your hair, then you're, you know, vain. What? Mm-hmm. Right. And the men in these cases or the, the men of this case aren't having their appearances attacked this way. Like Mm-mm. Marsha's colleagues and the defense lawyers were discussed in a variety of ways, but with Clark, her appearance almost seemed like it was required to be spoken about. And that's the running theme. 
Yeah. Clark's life was poor. While trying this case, she was also going through a divorce. Like, fucking yikes. Like, it's a lot. I, ugh, I, from what I hear about divorce, it like sucks all of it, like all the legal battle. But imagine like being a lawyer, knowing the legal battle that's involved in it, and then doing that case and then going to try a murder case. Like, oh my God. Like, just give her a Snickers and let her relax. So she's going through this terrible divorce and her second husband uses the case, the O.J. Simpson case, as a leveraging point in their custody battle. So Gordon Clark argued that he should be giving primary custody of the children because his wife, with whom the boys lived with, was rarely home. Yeah, because I'm sure that would have been an issue the other way around. But anyway, Clark was working 80 hour weeks and the long hours weren't conducive to being a single mother, but she was making do and the trial wasn't going to last forever. In a statement released by her attorney, Marsha Clark said, I'm devoted to my two children who are far and away more important to me than anything. I feel it is inappropriate of me to discuss details of my marital dissolution case or child custody issues in the media. And then she asked for privacy, which spoiler she did not get. Marsha was doing something that a lot of women were doing at that time, raising children as a single mother, balancing childcare and a demanding workload. It's not an easy task. During the trial, Marsha refused to stay late for an evening court session because she had other obligations. Her children were at home and she needed to be with them. One of the defense attorneys, Johnny Cochran, alleged that she was using her childcare issue as the reason to delay the witness. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. That was that was it. You know, Clark, despite trying to look softer as requested, stood up for herself here, saying that she was offended as a woman, as a single parent, as a prosecutor, and as an officer of the court. Marsha really couldn't catch a break as her first husband's mother found and sold naked photos of Clark to a tabloid. Yep, she was topless on a beach in France, which, you know, honestly, I wish I was. But those pictures were sold to the National Enquirer. We don't know how much they paid for them, but... That's where they were. That's where they were. And it's just like this woman's just trying to do a job. Like her life had become so publicized that even tampon purchases were fodder for strangers. In her book, she recalled a time where she was just buying groceries and the clerk quipped, I guess the defense is really in for it this week after scanning her box of tampons. I am done. Like, could you imagine? Like I would need to be bailed out of jail because I would slap him. I would hit him so hard in the face. Like that's, an insane thing to say to anyone, but, but that's to have the, the freedom to, to think you have the freedom to say something like that to a complete stranger, because like I heard about you on the TV so I can make jokes. Ha ha ha. But you as you know, like she couldn't like you're saying like, yeah, I would yeah. do this. And it's like, yeah, in my mind, I would do this. But as someone who needs to keep her composure to continue with this trial mm-hmm. and not be like, oh, well, this person is violent, so they shouldn't be in the in the court case. You know, like exactly she cannot do that thing. The case, it was overreaching into her private life. You know, her privacy was lost. And unfortunately, soon the case would be, too. At 10.07 a.m. on Tuesday, October 3rd, 1995, Simpson was acquitted on both counts of murder. I'm going to pause for a second because now I'm realizing the time my teacher didn't let us do anything for the rest of the day. Like four hours. There's no way it had to have been like until lunchtime. Oh no, but that was California. That was California. 10, 11, 12, 1 PM. 
Okay. Okay. Cause I was like, yo, we sat in silence. It was like, you only were able to read until the end of the day. Okay. It would have been 1 PM our time. Yeah. Okay. Not to make it about myself again, but now <laughs> I was just like, excuse me, the teacher made us sit in silence until from 10 AM, but it was, it was not the same time. Okay. Right. Thanks for letting me know about time since I forgot about it. <laughs> Clark was devastated at losing the trial of the century after putting so much into it for 15 months. The trial that had cost her so much grief and stress. She was bombarded with personal and professional attacks and her motherhood was put into question. Clark was no longer the butt of jokes about her hair. She was, however, seen as a loser in America's eyes. In Clark's uh, autobiography, she speaks of that day. She says... I didn't go to work that day. I didn't have to. The case was over. I got the kids off to school. I drove up to the coast to meet my friend for lunch. I was numb. I wanted relief. She knew this case was the end for her as a prosecutor. She took a leave of absence, exhausted her vacation and sick time, then resigned in 1997. She stated, I couldn't even think of going back there. The misery was so profound. That case really knocked her down and made her doubt her whole career. I mean... She resigned. Let's take those issues that we talked about in the previous section and really focus on the truth behind them. Let's start with her as a working mom. So this case had really put the spotlight on many things, race, class, and for Clark was motherhood and what it meant in an early 90s world. All eyes were on this case. And when Marsha told the judge, when Marsha told Judge Ito that she couldn't stay late because of her children, I got to think tons of other working moms understood her so deeply at that moment. None of the men had asked for similar accommodations. The ones with kids had wives and nannies covering that, leaving them free to focus on work. The Center for American Progress is an independent, nonpartisan organization looking for better economic and social issues for all Americans. In 2016, they asked Americans how hard it was to find childcare. 49% said they had no difficulty, while 43% of families noted that it was very difficult. It's, it's not funny, but I wonder how many families have time to take a poll if it's difficult for them to find childcare. You know, like they're probably busy. Yeah. And, and I mean, these numbers are also from 2016, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking 95, 05. We're talking 20 years after this trial. Mm -hmm. You've also got to imagine that these numbers would have been a little bit different in that time period as well, especially if you're talking about, you know, single parent families and the like. Uh, race and income also plays into this. You know, the middle class doesn't make enough to hire nannies a lot of times, uh, but they do make too much to qualify for state assistance for child care. And in some cases, families are working harder to cover the cost of child care itself. Like, you know, oh, do I work this job so that I make this money or do I work mm -hmm. this other job because it makes more money and then I can pay for this childcare situation that's a double expense or whatever. Yeah. Or sometimes I feel like you end up working overtime to cover your overtime. Right. According to a survey done in 1995 by the California Child Care Resource and Referral Network, nannies or babysitters who were placed through employment agencies and work for just one family were paid from $150 to $500 a week, depending on the qualifications. $500 a week is a huge financial toll out of a salary of $96K. 
and the standard for a prosecutor at that time. Once you deduct mortgage, lawyer's fees, feeding the children, and all the new clothes that Marsha had to buy to appease the media and the jury, you're not looking at much left over. And also, you said this was the standard um, salary for a prosecutor at that time. But I'm going to go with, uh, her, was hers less as a woman? Oh, because she was a woman? Oh, fuck. Jeez. Presumably. I, I mean, I don't have those numbers or anything, but if that's the standard for a prosecutor and the yeah. the courts are stacked with male prosecutors, that's mm-hmm. going to skew the numbers. I mean, yeah, I didn't even think about that. I mean, you could probably knock like 10,000 off that right off the bat, right? Oh, probably at least. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Ugh. You know, but it's also possible that maybe she just wanted to spend some time with her kids, you know, financial issues aside. She was working 80 hours a week and would be missing an opportunity to spend time with them. In an article written for The New Yorker in 1995 by Jane Mayer, Mayer calls out the sexism of this issue. She writes, when was the last time a prominent professional man was held up to front page scrutiny for spending too many weekends at the office for his kids good? In truth, most parents of both sexes feel caught in a tightening vice. Yet the punitive focus has a way of coming back to female behavior. Doesn't it always? Workplace sexism becomes hard to miss in that courtroom. You know, when after notifying the court of her children being home, Johnny Cochran says, are we really going to risk losing this witness because of a babysitting problem? My blood boils over that statement him just like knocking marsh's need to be with her children down to a babysitting problem is rude and it's sexist and it comes and it makes it a a woman's issue in quotes right that's not something that he or any other man in that room would need to concern themselves with the men get to be the babysitters while the women are 100 percent responsible for the children's well-being you still hear this kind of talk today and it infuriates me yeah it infuriates me so much when someone's like oh dad's babysitting the kids no he's those are his children like he's he's rearing them he's not babysitting (laughs) child rearing that's a thing yeah it is it is you're not wrong i it just it makes me so mad when people i don't i don't know what the word for it is but when, when i guess they just like they take all the stuff off the dad's plate because it's like oh the dad is the secondary parent is he it, shouldn't they both be like mom and dad number one? Like you're the same level. You would think. You should be. At this time, Clark is giving 100% in the case. She's working 80 hours a week, as we mentioned. But should she be willing to compromise the welfare of her children to prove that? Like, and what would the tabloids say if she did? Because the tabloids said all the things. Could you imagine? The headlines would be like Marsha topless on a beach, ignoring her children. Like it would be insane if she were to be like, oh, yeah, sorry. I'm going to work on this case. Sorry, boys. There's tuna in, in the in the fridge. It's tuna in the fridge. Never mind. <laughs> the cupboard. There's tuna in the cupboard. Marsha is the only woman in this court and the defense team and even sometimes the judge pick at her to undermine her. Judge Ida would joke about the length of her skirts. Cochran called her hysterical, as we mentioned before. When she was just giving an objection, which you do in court when you're a lawyer. Literally her job. Literally her job. None of the men face judgment about their parenting skills. And even Simpson, who was literally on trial for killing the mother of his children while they were sleeping, was not like questioned for this. Yeah. Like, oh, who's who's the best parent here? Well, not Marsha, but like maybe the guy who allegedly murdered the mom, like must be him. (sighs) 
It's also frustrating to me. Anyway, in Marjorie's book, which I'm going to try and get the Brooklyn Public Library to carry an audiobook. Well, stand by. We'll see how I, how I do with that. Um, she recalls receiving advice from that jury consultant we spoke about. His name was Donald Vinson, stating, The people he pulled perceived me as hard. I should speak more softly. I should get a softer hairdo. I should lose the business suits in favor of Gethis dresses. Just think about the logic here. Vincent claimed that black middle-aged women were carrying grudges against me. And so the way to defuse them was to gussy myself up like Vanna White. She goes on to say, Vincent's line of reasoning was unapologetically sexist and it was demeaning to me personally. And in the end, it was meaningless psychobabble. But we were spooked by a set of odds that were definitely not in our favor. So I got a goddamn haircut. It was not a makeover. The style I'd been wearing to date was frankly unflattering. But again, for me, like who the hell was commenting about the other lawyers, haircuts or clothing choices like, oh, Johnny Cochran, you didn't go get you didn't hit the barber this week. You know, you went an extra, you know, like nobody's saying that. Mm -mm. You're right. In an article written in January of 1995 by Teresa Welts for the Chicago Tribune, Teresa goes in. She's ridiculous. So first off, the title of the article is some fashion crimes in the Simpson courtroom. OK, I mean, Johnny Cochran's suits are rough. The robes are too loose on Judge Ito. Like mm-hmm. this, so, is, this is what we're talking about, right? Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. No. Um, so Teresa goes on to belittle everyone in the courtroom, but 60 percent of the article is reserved for Clark. Sure. Sure. One woman in the whole courtroom, 60% of the article. Mm-hmm. Wilt states, poor Marsha Clark. It's bad enough that she's prosecuting the most mediagenic murder trial of the century. As the chief woman in the O.J. Simpson murder case, she has faced relentless scrutiny, not for her prosecutorial prowess, but for her rather, shall we say, questionable taste in fashion. They talked about her poodle do. They talked about her mole. They talked about her legs. Mr. Blackwell of worst dress list fame skewered her. Even Judge Lance Ito commented on her short skirts. In frustration, Clark went out and got a makeover. Still, while I applaud her right to look as bad as any male attorney, I must say this. Even with a makeover, Marsha Clark needs making over. I just I want to sit Teresa down and just let her know. The they is you, Teresa. You are the they. You were talking about her poodle do. You were talking about the mole. You were talking about the legs. Teresa, you cannot separate yourself from the shit that you write. Like you wrote this. You need to be like, hey, I kind of hate women and I wrote this thing. But you didn't have to write it. Or maybe she did. I don't know if the Chicago Tribune had like a quota to fill. But the comment she's referring to is when Jojito told the jury not to be distracted by the length of Clark's skirts. You know, those skirts that she needed to wear in court to not appear as stiff and mannish. Now they were too short. Of course. Of course. Could you imagine you walk into a room of people that you're going to like present your thesis, your thesis to, right? And then, like, the dean of the school is like, yeah, don't, I mean, her gams are out, but, like, don't pay attention to that. Like, that is so unprofessional. In any, take that scenario and put it in any other job. That is so incredibly unprofessional to do. And he, like, thought it was, like, his type 15 up there to, like, make jokes about this. Like, that doesn't make any sense why he thought that he 
could just get away with saying because he did because he did. That's why he thought he can get away with it because he did. Right. He was he'd been able to. So what was going to stop him this Mm -hmm. time? And also we talk about power trips like because of the role that a judge holds. It just sort of like doubles down that power trip. He's anyway, the king of the courtroom. Yeah. When it was all over and the verdict was read and the case was lost, it became Marsh's fault because, of course, it did. A legal analysts were quick to conclude that if the case wasn't in the hands of Christopher Darden and Marsha Clark, there would have been a different outcome. But there were a lot of other factors that were in place. Marsha played the hand that was dealt. The prosecution lacked a confession, a witness, and an actual motive or a murder weapon. The case was filled with DNA evidence, which in the early 90s must have seemed like science fiction to most people. The defense alleged that there was evidence tampering. The people of L.A., the black people especially, were very distrustful of the police officers who testified. This case was not long after the Rodney King incident. On March 3rd, 1991, Rodney King was severely beaten by LAPD officers during his arrest over a traffic stop. This was caught on tape and released to the public. It's a very violent, bloody beating. And this led to a greater distrust of the police. The jury consisted of eight African-Americans, two Hispanics, one half Caucasian, half Native American, and one Caucasian female. Any of them could have harbored distrust for the police force, and the LAPD was known to be violent. There was also the dream team. Simpson's attorneys were legal royalty. The team included F. Lee Bailey, Robert Blasier, Sean Chapman Hawley, Robert Shapiro, and Alan Dershowitz. Johnny Cochran later became the defense team's lead attorney. And one of Simpson's longtime friends consulted as well. You you may have heard of him um, or, you know, at least his family. Right. You know. Robert Kardashian. Anyway, <laughs> what? Who, who this? What? <laughs> I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Never heard that name before. Never heard of that name before. Ever. Anyway, this whole team of lawyers reportedly cost Simpson an estimated fifty thousand dollars a day. What would you do with fifty thousand dollars a day? <laughs> like this trial lasted 15 months. Do quick math. I'm not a math scientist. How many houses is that? How many houses in the 1930s is that? That's (laughs) so much goddamn money. And you know what? You fucking paid off because like you walked. But Jesus, that's so much money. How do you even justify that amount of money a day? I... Like, oh, we stapled the papers twice. Like, what? what? I don't make that in a year by myself right now. So nuts. I don't, I need to change my profession. Yeah, same. I'm going to go. It would take too long. I'm going to go become an NFL player instead. (laughs) Oh, no, I meant a lawyer because like they got that money, but you're right. He had that money to pay. He had it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That's the other factor that Marsha had to overcome. Like the defendant was a rich and powerful celebrity. Most of the people who came in contact with him just wanted an autograph or a picture. Even after charges were filed, a lot of the cops were like, let's get a picture with OJ. So OJ was like the prom king, all American football player. Most people just saw him as being railroaded in an unjust system. Yeah, including like the, you and your in fourth, the fourth grade, grade. class. <laughs> yeah. Me and my whole fourth grade class. <laughs> it's a little more forgiveness for you all. <laughs> oh, thank you. So this is really one of the, the first big celebrity court cases. 
Clark had been in a courtroom with a camera before, but this case was different. The tabloids whipped up a feeding frenzy. Reporters battled each other to report every story and wild rumors. Both the print and television media demanded a steady supply of stories. And when there was nothing new to report, it was time to pick on Marsha Clark's divorce, her hair or her hemline. So you still see this today in celebrity court cases. This was the first big trial to be like celebrity court at at court TV. But from the Phil Spector case to the Bill Cosby case, and even as recent as the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case, there is money in these trials and the tabloids flock to them. But thankfully, during Clark's trial, the tabloids weren't the only ones watching. So Tammy Bruce, the president of the Los Angeles chapter of the National Organization for Women, was taking full notice of the way Clark was being treated. Tammy drafted a series of complaints about Ito's treatment of Clark and other women during the trial and presented it to the judge. Bruce's points included the fact that Ito had made a comment about the length of Clark's skirt and his threat to hold Clark in contempt of court after using profanity in her opening statements. He, however, didn't threaten the defense attorney, Robert Shapiro, for doing the exact same thing. The judge also didn't object when the defense attorneys described Clark as whining, hysterical, and overly emotional. Tammy stated, these situations in any courtroom during any case would be a problem. And yet we are all dealing with a trial which focuses on women and their treatment. It just exacerbates the problem with the image of women in general during a trial that the world is watching. The world was watching and people like Tammy Bruce were taking action to make sure that the treatment that Marsha received ended here. Representation is super important and seeing Clark in that courtroom led other women to know that they can do it too. The percentage of female lawyers grew from 27% in 1991 to 37% in the year 2000. Now, we're not saying that Marsha deserves 100% of the credit for this or anything, but we're going to give her some of it. I'm going to give her 67% of that credit. Okay. All right. That's me as a math scientist dictating the percentage. So everybody loves a good redemption story, right? Uh, but I don't know if it's a redemption story if like the person did nothing wrong or- a reboot, a retelling, a reimagining, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Marsha's came courtesy of Ryan Murphy and Sarah Paulson in The People versus O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story, which aired April 2016. Sarah Paulson played Marsha with Marsha's enthusiastic blessing, which I think this is definitely key. And it's, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, we mentioned the Pam and Tommy series when we did Pamela Anderson, and that did not have her support behind it. And in this case, Clark is happy to have this story told. It's a little different type of portrayal, but same idea. When asked during an interview, Clark was very excited about Paulson's performance. She stated, she's phenomenal. She's always been. What a beautiful, nuanced, subtle performance. Really, if nothing else, watch for her performance because she's terrific. Honestly, I 100% agree. Paulson brought out a vulnerable side that I didn't know Clark had, or better yet, a side that the courtroom cameras didn't capture. That's key to point out because like nobody knew that she had this side because that's not what we were shown. That's not Mm -hmm. what the media allowed us to see. And you know what? It wasn't our business one way or another. But but it was nice to see her story represented that way. Mm -hmm. TV reviewer Daniel Feinberg gave Paulson a stellar review saying there's a real sympathy that Paulson generates as Clark goes from cocky and confident to increasingly desperate as a slam dunk conviction turns into a referendum on her hairstyle, demeanor, and personal life. As Clark's discomfort grows, Paulson's collection of ticks seems more and more human. I do want to point out, though, that like 
I don't like the use of the word cocky there. So I feel like when when you say cocky and you're talking about a man, it always sounds like a positive thing. But when you say cocky and you're talking about a female, it sounds like braggadocious. That's what I'm that's why I'm taking issue with the use of Mm. this word. Right. Confident is good. "Hmm." I thought that he meant like cocky in a good way. But he's talking about a woman. So that's why. I, that's why I, I talk, question it. Right. Yeah, but he's also talking about a woman that he likes the performance of like his review feels positive. So I feel like what he's saying about her is positive. Like I was talking about, if I talked about some dude that I didn't like and I called him cocky, like you can infer that I mean that it's bad. I don't know if that's how words work. Okay. Maybe. I think I, I think follow. The, the inference. Yeah. American crime story put fresh or younger eyes on an issue and things were noticed. The sexism, the double standard. These things might have been overlooked in the 90s, but they would be criminal today. Unfortunately, when most people think of Marsha Clark, they don't think of the prosecutor with the phenomenal track record. They think of O.J. Simpson. But all of this is behind her and her daily life looks different now. She still works five days a week, but she makes her own hours. Marsha has spent the last 20 years writing. From scripts to novels, she's busy. She's written about a dozen books. One of them is her memoir that we keep referencing, without a doubt. The book was in such a high demand that they gave her a $4 million advance. How many houses is that in 1930? (laughs) (laughs) Math scientists write in and tell us. There's got to be somebody. And they're going to be like, um, this is my actual job title. Stop calling me a math scientist. <laughs> Clark has also developed a TV show. Marsha Clark investigates the first 48. It's a seven part series in which Marsha explores the high profile crimes that have remained unsolved or are controversial. It aired in 2018 on A&E. And while it's available as a streaming add on with many providers, You can also listen to the episodes as a podcast on Apple and Spotify, uh, probably other places, but those were the two that I saw. It it hasn't officially been canceled or anything, but there also hasn't been any indication of a second season and if it would air or not. Clark has also appeared as a television commentator about high-profile trials. All right. Final thoughts, takeaways. I feel like they've spoken about this a lot of times, like how privacy is such a kindness that is overlooked by women in the spotlight, especially in this case. Like she was just trying to do her job that she had done for years without a problem. But all of a sudden, this case, this case is what did it that brought all of her shit that was private into the spotlight. And I also think that sexism was definitely a factor in this case. I would be very interested in to find out in like a, a sliding doors world, like if Christopher Darden would have been the lead on this case. And there would have been no talk of how short someone's skirts are, or like how big someone's hair is. Like if people would have actually paid attention to the evidence, what the verdict would have looked like. Yeah. And the thing is, we see this time and again with women in positions of power or in line for potential positions of power. It's always something. And that something rarely has to do with their capabilities, but instead focuses on how they look. Right. The double standards are out of control. And while we'd like to think that this is a thing of the past, the reality is it's not. You know, women on the red carpet are being asked about designers when men aren't. Female presidential candidates are criticized over the color that they wear to a debate. So, you know, calling out a female lawyer for swearing, but not her male counterpart. That's just another example. 
It's bullshit and it's still happening. Well, a handful of resources and references if you're interested in learning more about Marsha Clark and her story. A Conversation with Marsha Clark, written by Stephen Galloway for The Hollywood Reporter. Marsha Clark is redeemed by Rebecca Traister for The Cut. Marsha, 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 American Crime Story. It's season one, episode six. You should watch the whole thing, though. But if you're like, "Eh, I'm too busy, I'm a prosecutor, just watch that one episode because it is great. I'm a prosecutor. I'm a prosecutor. Um, A Sad Truth About Assertive Women by Jessica Cho. And Without a Doubt by Marsha Clark. Let us know what you thought of this episode. We love hearing from you and engaging with your comments. Also, let us know if you have any suggestions for any women we should cover on a future episode. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and, well, once in a while, TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. TikTok is really hard, guys. (laughs) Oh, but I have a, this is dumb, but you know who started following me on TikTok? Twizzler. (laughs) <laughs> like the company Twizzler, because one of my TikToks, one of the first ones I did was like, oh, this is the perfect food to eat while wearing a mask because you could just slide it up the side. And the whole TikTok is me eating a Twizzler through my mask. And they finally liked it. This was months ago. I posted that and they liked it and they started following me. So maybe we get Twizzler as a sponsor. <laughs> Twizzler, are you listening? Twizzler, do it. You're anyway, if you want to find our podcast tiktok it's at big reputations pod send us a message on any of those platforms or you can email us at big at gmail.com we appreciate your feedback subscribe to us on spotify stitcher apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts share us with your friends your family or your dream team subscribe and leave us a five-star review and check out our merch our wonderful logo designer, Samantha Marmolejo, has the logo up on her Redbubble site so you can order a variety of items. Take a pic with your merch and tag us on Twitter or Instagram. Check out the link in the show notes. All right, let's wrap it up. What quote do you have for us this week, Kim? I've got one from the woman of the hour, Marsha Clark. I am a big supporter of women doing anything they want to do. And as always, believe women. Believe women.